Good evening. Uh, my name is Richard Miles, and I'm the head of the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry. And it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce this Sydney Ideas talk. Now, before we start, um, or begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Now, I have a tendency to talk for too long, and our speaker tonight is a very uh, diplomatic person, sent me a very diplomatic email yesterday saying, I do want you to know I do need the full hour for my lecture. <laughs> so I'm going to keep it admirably short. Now, look, obviously there's been um, all sorts of shocking and distressing news about a natural disaster in central Italy yesterday, um, which I'm sure we've all been thinking about. Um, but this is a, the story of an older natural disaster in Italy, um, the disaster that befell Pompeii. Now, obviously, Pompeii has sort of grabbed the popular imagination, perhaps more than any other site in the ancient world. And it's fantastic that tonight we have a great speaker to do that great site justice. Now, too often... We have uh, sort of popular speakers and TV presenters and TV dons who speak on subjects of which they know so little. Um, now, tonight we have somebody who's not only a fantastic speaker, but also really knows her stuff. She is a real expert on this particular site and this particular period. As I said, she's a great communicator too. Now, Dr. Estelle Laser. Is a, is, a, is a real member of the Sydney University family. She did her BA at Sydney and also her PhD at Sydney too. And she's also a very distinguished honorary associate of the Department of Classics and Ancient History. Now, before I go on any further and let Estelle speak, um, I would just like to say there's a sort of messages everywhere about this, and I'm sorry, it probably sounds a bit prescriptive, but please, no photographs of, of you, is that right, Estelle? Of just of the screen, okay? And that's because Estelle is now a BBC, a bona fide BBC television star. Um, and the BBC, now, um, I think for copyright, we're not actually allowed to, um, is that right? We're not actually allowed to have those pictures. So lastly, let me introduce... Dr. Estelle Laser and her talk tonight, which is Stolen Lives, Returning Identities to Pompeian Victims of the AD 79 Eruption. Can we please give her a round of applause? Thank you, Richard. As Richard said, um, Pompeii is such a compelling site, and the reason for that is because we have a phenomenal amount of preserved material. Everything from the most humble domestic artefacts to entire streetscapes and um, beautiful wall paintings, sculptures and the like. And it's the casts of the preserved inhabitants 
that are such an evocative reminder that we are, in fact, looking at the archaeology of a mass disaster, and that is, in fact, the reason why we have this amazing amount of returned material, uh, preserved material. Unfortunately, the techniques that have been used to obtain these casts have mostly not been documented. We have extremely little information about how these casts were achieved. And um, I'd just like to um, move you to 1953. Uh, Roberto Rossellini was making a um, voyage to Italy and he decided to cast Pompeii in his film. It's, um, it's a story of um, a marriage that's crumbling and it's set mostly around the Bay of Naples. And Mr Rossellini was quite close friends with um, the then director of archaeology in Pompeii, Amedo Maiuri, and he asked him to keep him abreast of what um, was happening in the excavations, especially if there were any casts about to be revealed. He wanted to include them in his film. And indeed he does this. So the legend goes that... Um, he was told that they were going to reveal some clasps. He puts them in a very important part of the film. His um, protagonists, played by Ingrid Bergman and um, George Sanders, have reached a terrible point in their marriage. They've just decided that they're going to get a divorce and they get whisked off to Pompeii to watch some casts being revealed. So we see the excavations in 1953, they actually show some holes being cut and plaster being poured in and then some previously cast bodies revealed. So this is presented as archaeology as it's happening. Okay. Just give me a sec. Look, you can begin to see something. What is it? like a leg. Yes. There's an arm. And there are two more legs. Well, it must be a group. they found the remains of nine people. There's the head. You can see the skull with the plaster clinging to it. And now the skull bones and the teeth both remarkably well preserved. Two people just as they were at the moment they died. Un uomo e una donna. A man and a woman. Perhaps husband and wife, who knows? May have found death like this together. Okay. <clears throat> now this is almost certainly a staged event for several reasons. One is, even though um, 
Mr Rossellini said that he, um, that this scene just happened and they incorporated into the film. He was um, obliged to give a pre-production script to uh, the Italian censor and it does include a scene of a naked couple caught in the act of lovemaking as um, the mountain overtook them. So um, very unlikely that um, this is not an arranged scene and there's more to it than that. Um, our understanding of what happened in the eruption suggests that you wouldn't just be um, taking out beautiful white plaster casts from the um, ash um, and loose pumice stones. Okay, so just to remind you, um, when we look at Pompeii, so we're looking at the stratigraphy here, and what I have in the lowest level is a two-metre ranging pole. And this represents the first phase of the eruption. So just to remind you, we have this um, series of explosions that resolves itself in a huge eruption column capped by a cloud. It um, is thought to have reached a height of somewhere between 27 and 32 kilometres at its peak. And it's howling ash and pumice in the direction of the wind on that day, which is towards Pompeii. So we get two and a half to 2.8 metres of ash and pumice raining down. This was not the most lethal phase of the eruption. If you had a respiratory problem or if you um, chose to stay indoors, um, the weight of ash and pumice building up on rooftops was sufficient to cause them to collapse and walls to collapse. So we do find victims in there, but essentially it was possible to escape. The really deadly phase happens when the explosions stop the eruption column can no longer support itself and we start getting a series of hot gas avalanches called pyroclastic density currents and they come in two forms. Pyroclastic flows, which are dense avalanches of pumice, ash and gas and pyroclastic surges, which are um, dilute avalanches of particles suspended in hot air and gas. And they can travel radially in any direction from the crater they travel at phenomenal speed, anywhere between 100 and 300 kilometres an hour, have incredibly high temperatures and very little free oxygen. You're not going to survive them. And what we're looking at here is the fourth and fifth surges. So the first surge didn't get to Pompeii. It killed people at Herculaneum. The second surge didn't reach Pompeii. The third surge reached the walls of Pompeii but did not enter. And the fourth surge followed almost immediately by the fifth surge we can see in this layer here. And it's here that we get the most remarkable form of preservation of organic material. And it only happens in and around the area of Pompeii. So nowhere else in the Bay of Naples. So on top of this, anything organic um, was covered by this very fine ash of the fourth and fifth surge layer. And it hardened around anything organic it was the same chemical composition as cement. And over time, the soft tissue decomposes. It percolates down through this nice porous layer of pumice and ash and leaves a void. And these voids were recognised from the 18th century when they started digging. So the first official excavations at Pompeii were in 1748. Now, just... Um, this is just to give you an, a little bit of a reminder of what we have always thought um, uh, was the technique used for creating casts. And this is what we believed up until 2015. 
Okay, so these are some costs being revealed in 1961 in the so-called Garden of the Fugitives. So our, our victim dies, it's covered by um, the surge, it hardens. Over time, they're covered by other volcanic material. When they're excavating, they observe um, uh, some void in the ground and they use two small holes. So one for pouring plaster in and another one as a vent so that they can fill the space. The skeleton is um, inside and um, you let the plaster dry for about three days and then chip the ash away and you're left with the form of the victim. And the point is you chip the ash away. So we certainly don't see this in Rossellini's film so we can assume it was completely staged for the film. Now, hold this thought. This is what has been accepted wisdom right up to 2015. So just keep this in your minds. To date, 103 victims have been um, cast, and that includes two non-human mammals, a dog and a pig. Okay. Now, the first casts of humans were successfully made in 1863. Before that, um, as I said, they recognised the voids from the um, beginning of excavations in the 18th century. They weren't able to do much with them. In the 19th century, they poured liquid plaster into voids and they were able to successfully cast um, wooden elements, doors, door frames, trees, etc., but it was not until 1863 that Giuseppe Ferrelli managed to successfully cast the first human victims, and this is the first human victim. They instantly captured the popular imagination. Um, they were displayed, and eventually Ferrelli um, uh, built a, an antiquarium on the site, which housed a lot of finds that didn't go to the large museum in Naples, but pride of place went to the casts, which were put in these glass cases so you could walk all around them. And stories were made up about these casts based essentially on superficial inspection and um, circumstantial evidence in the form of um, artefacts found with them. So this is the 16th cast that was made in 1890. And it was generally assumed to be an old crippled beggar. Um, this is thought to have been a bag for begging for arms. But on the left foot, we see the form of a very nice sandal. What's a beggar doing with a wonderful sandal? Clearly a gift from a philanthropist. Now, any cast with a vaguely distended belly tended to be interpreted as a pregnant female. So this is the fourth cast that was made in 1863, interpreted as a pregnant female. These casts, these casts were made in 1991 and uh, they're interpreted as a man leaning on one arm, shielding a pregnant woman, presumably his wife, and um, very specifically she's alleged not just to be pregnant or this individual is alleged not just to be pregnant but to be seven months pregnant. And we're looking here now at the ninth and tenth victims that were cast not far from the um, gate leading to Mount Vesuvius, so to the north of the site, in um, 1875. So the ninth victims in the foreground, I'll come back to that one a little bit later. The one I want to talk about now is the one behind, so this victim here, the tenth victim. And again, this person's interpreted 
as a pregnant female and often was eroticised. This was one of the ones that was given pride of place in the antiquarium. And uh, not just eroticised, but if you look at, just have a look at the buttock area there, and here you'll notice it's been made to look a lot more voluptuous and was often compared to, um, and don't forget, making casts of sculptures was very popular in the 19th century. So making casts of victims was often conflated with um, the casts of statues. And this victim was often compared with uh, a, a, um, a sculpture, part of the Farnese collection, that was housed in the Naples Archaeological Museum from 1802 onwards. It's called the um, Aphrodite Calipigus, the Venus with the lovely bottom. As you can see, she's looking at it over her drapery. Okay, now, the reason, and, and this tendency to create lives and personalities for the casts is what um, part of what I call the Edward Bulwer-Lytton effect. Now, Edward Bulwer-Lytton's novel, The Last Days of Pompeii, which was published in 1834, has been the single biggest influence on the interpretation of human remains in the um, Bay of Naples from the Vesuvian uh, eruption of AD 79. And this continues to the present. And it's very important to appreciate that, the, that there are very porous borders between popular culture and academic work in Pompeii, especially when it comes to the human remains. Now, Mr. Bulwer-Lytton, um, his book was incredibly popular. He spent a year in Pompeii doing research and um, he um, talked to archaeologists, he looked at the excavations. He produced this book in uh, 1834. It was a huge success. It was published in numerous languages. It's been turned into a number of film versions, a very tacky mini-series um, with Laurence Olivier and Franco Nero who are working for their retirements in 1984, a classics comic, and um, it's been hugely inspirational. Why is it so popular? Absolutely not because of Mr Bulwer-Lytton's prose. He's in fact famous for his turgid writing. He started his 1830 um, novel, Paul Clifford, with the words, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Every year, the Edward Bulwer-Lytton Award is given to the worst beginning of a novel. His poetry is much worse. So why do people read this stuff? Well, it's because he's produced the mother of all disaster stories. So you have a bog-standard, romantic, um, soap opera love story with a massive eruption thrown in at the end. So what keeps people watching is the same reason that people look at reality TV. They want to see who makes it off the last page. So I just want to, um, I want to just give you some indication of the devices he used. I won't tell you the whole story. Um, just to give you a little flavour of it. So he puts his protagonists in buildings that people can recognise. His hero lives in the so-called House of the Tragic Poet, famous for this mosaic with the chained-up dog that says, Cave Canem, beware of the dog at the front. And I'm illustrating this with the 1913 film version. So his um, <laughs> evil villain, who um, is a priest of the Temple of Isis, the gentleman on the right, teaching his ward 
the um, the mysteries of Isis, which um, well, that's the temple of Isis where he does his day job, and the mysteries, of course, um, seem to involve dancing girls and Persian carpets. Um, now, this character of um, the villain called Abarkas is based on an actual skeleton that Mr. Bullwilliton met. It was crushed by a column, and in the early years of the 19th century, um, people believed in phrenology, which is now being completely um, discredited. You know, um, you feel the bumps on someone's head and you can divine their personality. Um, Mr. Bullwilliton felt the bumps on this poor skull and decided it had belonged to a brilliant person with a tendency towards great evil. He loved the skull. He took it home and kept it as a paperweight on his desk in England. Um, now, this approach continues to the present. I don't know if you saw this artwork um, from 2014. It has an interesting history. So, um, in 2007, Roman Polanski decided to make a film of Robert Harris's um, bestseller of 2003, um, which was called Pompeii, which is essentially the last days of Pompeii with aqueducts. Um, <laughs> and Roman Polanski um, had a budget of 130 million US dollars to make this film. Uh, he left the film uh, because of script and location problems. It was to be filmed in Spain. And it was downsized to a miniseries, but then later upsized back into a film, which was released briefly in 2014. And it was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Now, Mr. Anderson took one thing from Mr. Polanski. Mr. Polanski wanted to use Robert Harris's characters, and he has parallel characters to those that were used in the last days of Pompeii. Um, and he wanted them to all end up dying in the positions of the famous casts, um, which Robert Harris thought was a brilliant idea. And Paul W.S. Anderson took this on board. So he had no comprehension whatsoever about how the casts were made, but his characters are all based on them. So in this film, his evil villain is now a Roman senator called Corvus. He has no redeeming features. Oops, sorry. He has no redeeming features at all. And so Mr. Anderson assumes that, like all bullies, he's a terrible coward and, and bases his character on this cast, which he calls the cowering man. Now, this is wrong on many levels, but just bear in mind, this cast was um, made... Uh, outside a latrine in the large um, gymnasium <laughs> in 1935 and was found in this position, so not sitting up. So um, what the restorers did is as they restored it, they kept adding plaster to the base until eventually it was sitting up because it was easier to display. So just bear that in mind. So it really gives it a different flavour. Our... Um, African slave gladiator is based on a cast made by Mayuri in the 1950s. It was bigger than the casts around it. And if you've got really good imagination and bad eyesight, possibly looks African. <laughs> and our hero, Kit Harrington, who um, 
decides with his girlfriend, Emily Browning, that no, they cannot outrun a pyroclastic surge, so decide to meet their fate in an embrace. They're based on the two characters on the bottom right um, that were cast in the house so-called of the Cryptoporticus in 1914. Interestingly, these two characters are usually identified as women, but we won't go there. Okay. So, a large part of my working life has been spent studying the bones. And what I've tried to do is provide a little bit of an antidote to this Bulwer-Lytton approach of using the bodies as props, essentially, for storytelling. And um, uh, unfortunately, the skeletons weren't... Um, stored very carefully, so they um, became disarticulated and um, it was impossible to put whole individuals back together. But what I did do was I separated the bones into piles of left and right bones of each element so that I could use modern forensic techniques and statistical studies to try and characterise the Pompeian sample of victims. People had written, without ever looking at any of the skeletal evidence, that the victims were made up of um, the old, the infirm, very young people and apparently women weren't fast runners. So I was able to test this um, and in fact found that what we seem to be looking at is a random sample of a normally distributed population. Now from my first um, days in Pompeii, which go back all the way to 1986, and from first seeing a cast and seeing the bones sticking out, I knew that I really wanted to study them. Because what you can get from individual skeletal elements is not bad, but what you can get from whole skeletons is so much better. Especially if you're looking at pathology, for example, because bones can only respond to insult in a very limited number of ways. You can um, have new bone forming, you can lose bone, or you can get a combination of the two. And the more bones you have of a skeleton, the more you're able to see patterns of change and the more likely you are to make good diagnoses. So I always thought it would be wonderful to study the casts and compare them with the results that I had from my disarticulated sample to get a much better idea of who these victims were. As I sat, and this is um, an ancient bathhouse on the site, you'll see that there are a number of casts that I was sitting amongst. This is after three months of cleaning. So imagine when I started, there was a mound of bones like this. Um, and you can see their casts where the arms and legs have come off and um, we um, can no longer, I mean, they're no longer on display. And what I didn't realise, and in fact nobody knew until last year, is that a number of the casts I was sitting with were some of the earliest and most iconic. So that cast I just showed you is this cast, which is the ninth cast to be made in 1875. And it's um, usually on the basis of, again, a good imagination, interpreted as a moor. They were found with an iron bar. We also have, sitting right next to me, um, the first cast ever made, um, which was cast in 1863, and the only one with a distended belly that is not interpreted as a pregnant woman because it has um, the remains, what appear to be the remains of a moustache. Now, it's interesting finding these because these were thought to have been lost. In 1943, the American and British allies um, 
bombed the Bay of Naples very heavily. They were trying to stop the Germans from advancing and Pompeii became collateral damage and the antiquarium where all the casts were stored was um, unfortunately very badly hit and it was thought that a lot of the casts hadn't survived so it's amazing to discover that they're still there. I'll talk more about that a little later. Now one thing I did appreciate was that there was certainly art amongst the science of casting these victims. And that's because you can actually see stylistic changes over time. So we're looking here at um, the seventh cast, which was made in uh, 1873. Often described as a sick man because it's not, this person's not struggling, so they thought they must have already been unwell when the Mount Vesuvius erupted and didn't um, fight the um, oncoming uh, cataclysm. And often is compared more to a sculpture than to a cadaver. Um, you notice it's very naturalistic. Uh, this is a cast that was made in November 1961. It was found on a staircase in the west of the site in the so-called House of Fabius Rufus. And you can see it looks very, very different. And what we see is that 19th century casts tend to be very naturalistic. And those made in the 20th century, um, up until the early 60s, tend to look more like modern sculptures. So very rubbery limbs, a slash for mouth, a depression for eyes. So the restorers who worked on the casts, and again, as I said, we don't have a lot of documentation, or any in fact, um, they were people who were used to restoring sculptures and kind of created sculptures as well, but the bones, we thought, were inside. Now, I had the first opportunity to um, X-ray and CT scan any of the casts. In fact, the first time it was ever done was in 1994. And there was a cast that wasn't made in Pompeii, but from very close to Pompeii, at a site that is known as a plontus. There's uh, several structures there. So there's a villa that contains these magnificent wall paintings but has yielded no victims. And behind that was found a working farm complex with 54 victims, one of which was experimentally cast in resin. And this one was documented. Um, a whole book was written about how this was cast in the mid-1980s. It was made in a, with a technique something like the lost wax technique that's used for casting bronze. And uh, unfortunately, it's the only case that's ever been cast in resin because the resin hasn't um, weathered very well. It's become very dry and dark and brittle over time. And um, uh, like I said, it's the only one. But it came to Australia as part of a Pompeii exhibition that was shown at the Australian Museum in Sydney in 1994. We were given permission by the Italian um, government from the superintendency of Pompeii um, to do the first ever x-rays and CT scans. So it went to a day clinic in Sydney and was subjected to a full set of x-rays and um, it was given uh, CT scans up to here because you can see the arms are bent like this. This is the effect of heat on protein. So um, having met very high temperatures at minimum 200 to 250 degrees Celsius at or around the time of death causes protein to shrink and shrink in the, and you get contraction in the direction of the biggest muscle mass. 
So um, the upper part couldn't go into the CT scanner. But we were able to um, X-ray all of it. And from the X-rays, we found that um, it was more consistent with a female attribution than a male, that um, all the bones and teeth were fully developed. So we're looking at a mature adult, possibly consistent in age with someone in their fourth decade, so in their 30, uh, 30s. And um, they died with their mouth open. So I was working with a team that included a forensic uh, dentist, radiologist, radiographers, um, an orthopaedic surgeon, an anatomist. Uh, the forensic dentist could put normal dental x-ray plates in and found that four of the teeth uh, showed signs of tooth decay. Uh, in some cases involving the whole crown, there was a, an abscess forming at the root of one of the teeth. There was some um, evidence of gum disease and the teeth were quite worn. Um, we can tell wet from dry bone fractures. So these are, this is an arm with a replica of a bracelet on it. And they're all dry bone fractures, but there was evidence of a healed fracture of the wrist, which was consistent with them having fallen on an outstretched hand. And the backbone beautifully preserved, no signs of arthritic changes. So this demonstrated that it was going to be possible to do um, a study on the casts. I applied for permission to X-ray and CT scan all the casts and was given permission with a few caveats. One was that um, all the work had to be done in Pompeii because the casts are very fragile, they're mostly plaster. And two, because they're very fragile, we couldn't, um, we couldn't lift any of them onto the bed of a CT scanner, so that wasn't possible. Now, doing this work is very expensive and bringing a team out is very expensive. So interestingly, a lot of the work that has been done on these has been funded by films, um, mostly BBC productions. So in 2012, the BBC was making a film and they wanted to X-ray some of the skulls of the casts to do facial reconstructions, even though the casts still have faces. And because I had the permit to do the X-ray studies, I had to be there. And the agreement was that I would get the data. So um, the, the documentary, and there's a sort of a law that all documentaries about Pompeii have to be called Pompeii and have a colon. Um, so this was called Pompeii colon, and I'm not making this up, the mystery of the people frozen in time. Um, even if they aren't about Pompeii, they have to have Pompeii in the title. So there's one called Herculaneum, colon, the other Pompeii. Um, <laughs> so this is a very cheesy documentary. It's never been shown in Australia because the presenter was a, uh, this person here was a, is a reality TV star. She was every woman. Um, but I did inherit the... Um, the, um, the uh, digital X-ray um, engineer, and he um, he was very interesting. His name's Stain Luke. He's from Belgium, and I was instantly impressed with him because he understood that getting readable X-rays through thick plaster was going to be a bit of a nightmare. Um, it's very they present very similarly, um, so. What he did was, in the weeks before he came to Pompeii, was he ate barbecues for all his meals. 
and he embedded the bones of his meals in plaster of different thicknesses to work out how much radiation was required to bombard the plaster with to get some sort of readable image. Of course, um, our poor victims are already dead, so it doesn't really matter how much radiation we expose them to. Um, so just to show you, so that's the reusable plate. His little X-ray machine, and this is the 2012 iteration, um, it was specially designed for veterinary purposes. So um, it's designed for animals that, that don't happily go into a clinic, like um, into a surgery, like rhinoceroses and elephants, and perfect cup. So you can take the image, it's processed through a processor here, comes up on a computer screen and can be manipulated. So these are the first images that we had. Um, this cuff here, the, you can just make out the eye socket, the upper and lower teeth. There's a wire introduced to hold the hand in place. This individual here, you can see the eye sockets, the opening for the nose, the upper and lower teeth. And with the different exposure, you can even see the roots going down almost to the end of the jaw. They're not fabulous, but it was a good start. Now, everything changed last year, and that's because there was a cast restoration project in Pompeii. Um, there's a big project in Pompeii at the moment called the Great Pompeii Project. It's a 105 million euro project um, to uh, remediate the site, and the cast restoration project was just a part of it. So casts were collected from across the site and brought to a makeshift laboratory on the western edge of the site. They were cleaned, limbs that had come off were reattached using dowels made of carbon fibre. They were infused with nanoparticles of um, consolidant um, to make them a little more robust. They were um, then um, laser scanned uh, so they can be virtually studied and also the data from the laser scans can be used to print the um, casts in 3D so they can be sent to museums and exhibitions across the world. And uh, I was um, appointed as a consultant to the superintendency for this um, project. And one of the jobs I was asked to do was to talk to media outlets because one of the requirements of the Great Pompeii project is that um, the information that's gained is disseminated as widely as possible. So um, amongst the media outlets I spoke to were a group of people making a film for the BBC. And they said to me that they would really, really like to film me X-raying and CT scanning the casts. I said, um, that's wonderful, but a bit premature. We don't have the funding for this yet. They said, can we help? <laughs> it took me a nanosecond and um, suddenly everything was in place. So um, they brought out my team, who will be um, in a panel later for questions, um, Dr Elaine Middleton, who is a forensic dentist, who um, is uh, using... A, portable dental x-ray machine that's specifically designed for mass disaster identification. So it's been used for identifying victims of uh, the Bali bombing, the 2004 tsunami in Thailand, and appropriately, um, Pompan victims. So they're a bit more difficult to um, assess through plaster lips, but um, he did his best. And of course, we have Dr. Zung Vu from the University of Notre Dame, 
who um, is an anatomist and a radiologist and um, was essential for interpreting the, um, uh, the X-rays and the CT scans. And Stain Luke came with his 2015 iteration of um, a portable X-ray machine. And we have a, an even wider team. So what we have from the left, this is um, Roberta Canuglia, who's um, from Phillips uh, in Naples. And he and his team brought a full hospital CT scanner onto the site. Uh, to the right, there's a cast of the pig in the middle. Um, to the right of the pig is Giovanni Babino, who's a radiologist from Salerno, and he organised with Phillips to bring the scanner onto the site. The gentlemen with the nitrile gloves are restorers who could carry the casts across the site. And so this was a big change. We no longer had that caveat about lifting the casts onto the scanner. So there was this wonderful confluence of, um, of uh, the stars aligning where it became possible to undertake this project that I've been hoping to do since 1986. I also have to acknowledge on the left we have the superintendent, um, Massimo Ozana, who um, has supported this project, and to the right, uh, various members of the Cast Restoration Project, without whom this wouldn't have been possible. And also want to acknowledge uh, as participants in this project, because it's always a problem when you stand in front of an auditorium, it looks like you do everything. But in fact, when you're working on a project, you're just one member of a team. And um, the team is big, and I'm just introducing a few people from it. But I have to introduce Associate Professor Catherine Welch, who's here tonight, from the Faculty of Arts from Ancient History here at the University of Sydney, who's been a huge supporter of the project. She's actually taken on the role of um, project historian and has been responsible for getting a small grant to do some of the preliminary research for this project. Um, of course, the film team from the BBC were essential. I asked them to send me a photograph um, that I could use in lectures of them, and for some reason they chose to send me this, um, um, which is them eating pizza and chips at the amphitheatre at midnight. Um, you can see Mary Beard with her remarkable shoes, and if you've got very good eyesight, you can see a natal cleft, which is in the vernacular, that's a plumber's crack. Um, and the production manager sent me this photo. So um, Academy Travel have also supported the project. When they saw those photos, they said, let's just give you a logo. Um, and I want to say that they've supported the project on a number of levels. Um, particularly um, in terms of disseminating information with them. They've sponsored a number of, um, of seminars for ancient history teachers and also trips out to schools to share the information that we have, even though this is preliminary. Now, working with the film crew is um, it's wonderful but problematic in that um, they actually call the agenda. So normally you would have a research design when you do a project but they already had their own agenda for which costs would be filmed and studied. So we just worked opportunistically with, um, within their constraints. Um, now, Phillips brought their CT scanner onto the site uh, with a truck and set it up um, just outside the walls of the site near the amphitheatre. 
And in the amphitheatre, as part of the Great Pompeii project, um, they had an architect um, uh, designed um, exhibition space, which looks like a pyramid, but I'm told is actually a model of Mount Vesuvius. Um, <laughs> and inside there's a kind of a pit, uh, there was a pit, with about 20, well, 21 of the um, casts that had been restored. And we um, studied these. They were carried across the site, either from the laboratory to this truck, or taken from the exhibition and carried across the site um, with a trolley where possible, but often just with this specially designed um, stretcher, which was designed so that they wouldn't get damaged walking across these very uneven streets. And it's a very big ask to carry these because with the stretcher, the weight was something like 200 kilos. So the cars were put into the CT scanner and um, just for those of you, and we do have someone from Philips here if you have um, technical questions afterwards, but just basically um, you have a motorised platform where you place your patient or cast and then you go through the gantry which has um, a rotating X-ray beam. So as the patient goes through, you get a series of um, X-ray slices that can then be stitched together um, with a computer. So I just thought I'd, um, there's a cast going in, and I'll just show you um, what this looks like. So these are the slices. So we've got the bed of the scanner. Um, we're looking at a head, and these two um, things here are actually metal bars used for reinforcing. This is the top of a lower jaw. So we're just going to go through the skull. So what you're going to see is we have the lower jaw and the teeth emerging. And then we're going to see the upper jaw and the teeth and go out through the top of the skull. Now, when it's stitched together, this is what it looks like. So this is a cast that was made in 1978 outside the Porta So just to give you a sense, and you can see there's a reinforcing rod just here. And oops. And now I'll show you some cases. Okay, so this was um, an individual I really wanted to study. This is the only one that the BBC let me actually um, put into the scamming that I chose, but they wanted it also for their documentary. So this is the, you might remember, it's the 10th cast that was made in 1875. And I'd always wondered about this one because in different photographs there's two different hands and I've never been able to see bones there, and I wondered if it weren't a secondary cast that had been um, made um, from an original, because they did make a lot of secondary casts, and that the original might have been the one that was lost uh, after the bombing in 1943. So we put it through the scanner, and in fact, all we saw were these brackets and iron bars. And when... So... If we rotate it, you can see it looks pretty empty. The BBC hated me for this. Um, but what was interesting is that um, uh, Dr Vu, who will be in the panel afterwards, is very, very careful. I mean, it is really important if you're a scientist or an archaeologist that you have a little bit of obsessive-compulsive disorder. And he looked at every single frame of the scan. And what I want to show you now is that's the head. This is the arm, and we're going to look at slices through this arm. So we thought it was empty. 
So that's the bed of the scanner. And this is the arm starting to appear. So plaster, plaster, plaster. And then we start to see bones. So this is one of the forearm bones. It's the ulna. And in fact, as we keep slicing through, we start to see the other bone, the radius. And you notice that there's two different colours on the plaster. So this is separate to that. And in fact, as we keep going, you'll start to see a flare, uh, oops, which is where um, they obviously lost the hand, made a new one and reattached it with a metal dowel. So that explains the two hands in the photographs. Now, this is perhaps not what we expected, <laughs> um, certainly not what the BBC wanted. And um, what we're looking at here is not a secondary cast, it's not a fake, it's the original because the bones are still in situ. But what have they done here? Certainly, Mr Fiorelli, when he started working on the casts, did not divulge exactly what he did. He was very media savvy, he understood the popularity of them and he kept them a mystery. Now, if they... And to get bones... So what they've clearly done is they've removed bones and they've put... Um, reinforcing rods and brackets in, and then made plaster. Now, in the early years of this um, millennium, a Japanese team of archaeologists cast two individuals that they found, one with manacles, and they removed the bones first and then poured plaster in, and what they got was this. So it looks a bit like um, it's half of a cast, half of a person. You can see one side's completely flat, so to get a three-dimensional person back, they had to do a lot of creative reconstruction. If we look at the dog, which was the eighth victim cast in um, 1874, found in the front of a house, um, the house of Vesonius Primus, or the house of Orpheus, chained, um, uh, there's two bronze rings there. We see, and this is just an animation, you see inside nothing. Um, except, again, they're the bronze rings. This is where um, the head had come off back on. And we've got a lot of metal in there. Um, if we look at uh, volume rendering, um, and colours have been used to show different types of plaster, you can actually see it's been put together in about seven different pieces. So, um, not just one cast. Um, uh, Dr. View reckons that um, the main body is the original. Maybe limbs have come off and were reattached, but it's certainly not as we expected to find it. And um, this is, of course, very problematic <laughs> because most of the costs that we found from the late um, 19th and early 20th centuries were without the majority of bones. Now, this doesn't mean that they're totally faked because in every case except for the dog, we found some skeletal elements. Um, we, and before we even discovered this, we noticed that when the cast in the cast restoration project were cleaned, that um, the weave of clothing became apparent. And we began to worry that um, perhaps there was some artistry here because... It looked so good. Um, 
There's one person still alive who's made casts. His name's Antonio de Simone, and um, he made nine casts in 1991 using a viscous um, combination of cement and bauxite. And the reason he did that was because he said the technique for making plaster casts had been lost, and they found forms that they wanted to preserve very um, quickly before they were lost. So they pumped this um, uh, lime cement with bauxite into the voids very quickly, and nine victims were revealed. And some of them, you could see the impression of their clothing and even locks of their hair. So what I want to give you is the, um, not the idea that what we're looking at is a collection of fakes, but that what we're looking at is actually quite complex. Now, a number of the casts do have bones. So um, at the moment, um, uh, Dr. Vu and I are having robust discussions about the interpretation of these. So we're working out what sex they were, what age they were, any pathologies that show population affinities. Um, this cast here, which I showed you earlier, is from 1978. So I'll just show you a few cases quickly now. Um, it, um, it was uh, used for a press conference last year when the project um, was underway. And a dentist looked at this mouth for about two seconds and said the Pompeians had perfect teeth. Um, Alan Middleton had a good look and he found that uh, one of the molars looks like it's um, lost its crown due to tooth decay. There is um, periodontal disease, gum disease, and a large build-up of calcified plaque on the teeth. Now, it's quite important looking at oral health because it gives us a good indication of general health because a healthy mouth reflects a healthy body. And it's been found that the bacteria associated with tooth decay and gum disease have been implicated in a raft of other general health problems. Um, we're one organism, so if they get loose into the bloodstream, they can cause other problems. They're sticky. They can attach themselves to um, things like heart valves and cause heart valve problems. And they've been implicated with um, a variety of disorders ranging from arthritis to diabetes to ulcers. Okay, so just quickly, um, if you can cope, I'll show you a few um, more cases. We have a very small child that was cast in 1974. They were found uh, under a staircase on the western edge of the site in the so-called House of the Golden Bracelet, looking like they were heading towards the marina. So we have a child with an adult with a child seemingly standing on their um, waist and to the left another adult. So this child here with volume rendering you can see the outside really beautifully. And we can also see inside the cast, and we do have bones here. So you can see there's the leg bones, we've got the back bones, we've got the skull. There has been a rod introduced um, to reinforce it. Um, we observed uh, at the chest there was um, something that looks like a buckle. So it appears that when they went down, their clothing bunched up, and, um, and we have the buckle at their belt just up here. And we can tell a little bit about them. So um, Dr. Alan Middleton's examined the teeth, and what we're looking at are slices this way through the skull. 
So we have here the eye socket, the nose, and we're looking at, you know, we have two sets of teeth. So these are the um, primary teeth, the deciduous teeth that you lose as a child. And these are the adult teeth forming in the jaw quite high up, and they form from the crown to the root. And by looking at the patterns of um, development and eruption, we can get um, within 18 months of their true age, and um, Alan reckons, because he's very experienced, probably closer in this case to within about six months. So we start off seeing the upper jaw because um, they've got a slight overbite. So these are all primary teeth. Then we see the lower jaw with the two sets of dentition forming. Now they're only primary teeth um, erupted and the roots are fully formed. Uh, so Alan aged the, um, this individual at being somewhere between two and a half and three years of age when they died probably closer to three years of age. Um, looking at the um, other bones, we can see here this is the thigh bone and this is where there'd be a growth plate in life and the shin bone. And here we have the little bones of the foot, the tarsals, and they don't ossify till about three years of age. So that means that's um, very likely um, around two and a half to three years of age. Now, a number of the victims wouldn't fit into the um, gantry of the CT scanner, so we x-rayed them, and this is where Stain came into his own. We spent a whole night in the amphitheatre, um, in this pyramid, um, x-raying the uh, victims with the BBC film crew. Um, so I just thought I'd show you. And um, Stain's 2015 equipment has a lot more oomph than the 2012 version and it was so impressive he was able to, when he really ramped up the power, he took out all the lights of the BBC film crew. Um, so just to look at some of the other cases, we have this little child here. Um, if we see the x-ray you can see the bones of the cranium. The inside looks remarkably empty. And we can see this is the body. There are two metal rods have been inserted to um, reinforce it. And just here, and it's going to flip because we've got a different angle showing, we can actually see the lower jaw. So um, when the body decomposed, the, um, the soft tissue decomposed and the jaw dropped to what's now waist level. Um, Alan studied this um, jaw and found that there was a mixed dentition, so there were adult and juvenile teeth in there, and it looked like that um, the front teeth of the milk teeth had gone and the adult teeth were pushing through and causing overcrowding, so the teeth are um, overlapping here. And he ages this individual at somewhere between five or six years of age. Now, interestingly, there's a bit of artifice here, and this is 1974. These look like bricks, and there are some bones that are not child bones in there. So even with the more recent casts, there's been some manipulation. Um, the adult that they're standing on has um, worn teeth, but they have stone ground flour. So um, they're getting little bits of stone basalt in their flour when they're eating, and that's wearing their teeth away. But what we can see here is um, two of the premolars and the first molar seem to have been lost before death. The second molar's migrated across here. Um, so we have some anti-mortem tooth loss. 
And this individual here seems to be a little younger, full adult dentition, no signs of tooth decay. Um, and again, rods introduced to reinforce the cast when it was made. Now, the individual that was cast in 1890, if you can remember back an hour ago, sorry, um, that was interpreted as an old crippled beggar with the begging bag and the sandal. We x-rayed that and we x-rayed the head and there was nothing inside. Nothing inside a lot of it except for um, uh, some of the limbs. So we have the left foot with the reinforced rod and the remains of a sandal there. And the begging bag looks like a miscast hand. And the right foot, very telling, because you can see the remains of what would have been a growth plate. So um, this in life would have been made up of cartilaginous material of rapidly dividing cells that ossifies when you become an adult. So what we're looking at here is not an old crippled beggar, but actually a sturdy, young, growing individual. So even with a lot of um, the material lost with the cuffs compromised, we're still able to make some interpretations and bust some of those myths. And the last case that I'll show you is this individual, which for some reason has been stored in the main church in Pompeii. No one knows why. Um, it was found to have tooth decay on two of the teeth an abscess forming on one of the roots. Um, but I wanted to show you the, um, this is the hip area. So we're looking, you can see a thigh bone here, a thigh bone here. And this white object here, which from another angle turns out to be a belt buckle. And in fact, if we see the exterior of the cast, you can see that there, are, there is the remains of a belt there. So obviously, this project isn't quite what we expected it to be. In fact, the superintendency was extremely upset when um, we started to find all these empty casts. So I said to the superintendent, no, it's fantastic. None of this was ever documented. We're learning about how the archaeologists worked in the 19th century. So when they had the press conference, the superintendent stood up and said, this is fantastic. We never knew how these were made. But... Obviously, we can find out information about these casts. So this is a preliminary study, but what we're hoping to do is to, one, learn more about how archaeology was performed on the site in the late 19th and early 20th and even right through the 20th centuries, and also to gain enough information to return um, the lives to these victims of the AD 79 eruption of Mount Vesuvius, uh, whose lives and bodies have been appropriated by storytellers and restorers. So that's our aim. Um, we do have my esteemed colleagues here if you have technical questions, and otherwise we'll throw the floor open for questions. Thank you. Thank you, Estelle. That was a really, really wonderful talk. And could members of her team come down and sit, in the, sit down here at the table and, and answer, some, answer our questions? We've got some, some travelling microphones going around, so if you put your hands up, we shall um, aim to get the microphone to you. So would you like to come and sit down here? And, and please introduce yourselves as well. Yeah, I'm Zoom from University of Notre Dame. 
Uh, my name's Nick Capsmalis, I'm with Philips. So if you have any CT questions, CAT scanners or X-ray. Alan Middleton, forensic dentist, forensic odontologist based here in Sydney. CT scan takes longer, but um, with with the uh, helico scan with multi um, detector, it, it takes only minutes. Well, you could actually rotate the CT scanner, uh, that particular one, uh, about half a second of rotation it takes to rotate, and you can run about four centimetres of coverage with each rotation. Hi, um, my name is Tarlia. I was wondering, you said that um, you, from the cast, there were thought to be a lot of pregnant women. Did you actually find any evidence of pregnancies, or was it just miscasting? Oh, a very good question. The answer is no. Um, the, um, the one that was, um, that was thought, one of the ones that was thought to be a pregnant female, if you look at it closely, you can see actually the... Um, the drapery of their clothing they're wearing is all bunched up. I think this happened quite a bit when people came down with the force of the eruption. And um, it's really just bunched up clothing around the waist. There's no um, enlarging of the abdomen at all. And we've certainly found no evidence of um, fetal remains in any of our casts so far. Hi, I'm Sophie. I was wondering if you could learn anything about the diet of these people by their oral hygiene? There was a, a, a theory around that uh, the Mediterranean diet was particularly healthy for the dentition. Quite a number of the denticians exhibited either decay or abscess teeth. Uh, and what was also interesting is that a number of the denticians indicated some form of trauma, which, while unrelated to the diet, um, probably indicated uh, either trauma at time of death or trauma prior to death. Hey, I just wanted to know, does the software for the CT scanners have to be redesigned to work with plaster and concrete? No, it doesn't. We, we do scan plaster anyway when they check plaster casts. So it'll scan anything from air to bone or metal as well. Hi, Louise here. Hi, Estelle. Hello. I'm um, just wondering if there will be other casts made in the future and um, how many bodies are, or how many casts are we talking about in total? Uh, there are 103 casts have been made and the last ones were made uh, in about 2002. So... Uh, at the moment, there is a moratorium on major new excavations, so they're not planning to find more, but every so often, um, just even with minor excavations, bodies appear, and of course, if it's possible to cast them, they'll be cast. The technique that's going to be used, we're not sure about, but certainly the casting will continue. This is Alex here, and I was just wondering, following up in the oral IG, 
thing. Could it also be considered unhealthy if they were getting bits of grit in their tea from the mills? In, in lots of uh, ancient civilizations where they had a lot of grit in their diet, there is evidence of extensive wear. Um, that didn't automatically lead to dental problems. If they lived long enough, yes, the nerve chambers of teeth would be exposed from wear and tear, but nature also combats to some extent by shrinking the nerve away from the area of insult uh, with limitations. And so these people, while they had uh, aggressive wear on their teeth, often didn't necessarily have um, abscess teeth or, or um, exposed nerves. Probably sensitive teeth. Um, hi. You, um, when you were looking at the past and you were scanning them, you found that, um, you know, some of them didn't have bones in them. Like, and you were discovering more about what the early archaeologists did. So, like, what would you say are the main differences in, like, the way they approached the archaeology as opposed to you and your team? And, like, what were the main differences in the methods and, like, Okay, um, well, when they were working in the 19th century, I think they very much had in mind the people who were going to view the casts. So they wanted to create, um, and this is really, there's a long history for this in Pompeii, that um, they created tableaus right from the earliest excavations from 1748 for visitors to the site, initially for royalty and then for the general public. So I think they were trying to create the most um, engaging um, visualisation of the victims and they weren't so worried about accuracy and science. And um, I think Mr Goethe summed up Pompeii very well when he said, there have been many disasters but few that have given so much pleasure to so many people. <laughs> Now, in Australia, we're very sensitive to um, the ethical issues of um, studying and displaying uh, human remains. And this, uh, our sensibility has definitely been um, influenced by the fact that we've been um, forced to look after the remains of Indigenous Australians who, for religious and other reasons, don't like their ancestors' remains to be displayed or studied. Now, when you work on any archaeological site on human remains, you have to ask the questions, should you be doing this work? And you need to engage with the stakeholders who are the people who claim genetic or um, cultural affiliations with the material. And in Italy, they have a long tradition of displaying human remains. In fact, the superintendent um, who amazingly has read my work, um, took me aside and said, I notice you in Australia are very interested in ethical issues. What do you think of the display that we have in the amphitheatre? And I said, well, you in Italy display human remains. And he looked at me in the eye and said, yes, we do. Um, so just bear in mind that from medieval times onwards, the Italians have been displaying human remains um, they initially did it for religious reasons. You know, they put um, clerics into crypts that um, uh, naturally mummified soft tissue. And um, the medieval um, 
people thought that um, this was an act of divine intervention because they knew that when you died, you decayed. So if you failed to putrefy, obviously that was God um, intervening and it was worth seeing. So there's a long tradition of looking at bodies. So in terms of the um, human remains from Pompeii, I don't think it's a serious ethical issue. But certainly it's, a good, it's an important question to ask and nothing, um, uh, nothing should ever stop you from being respectful of that material. I mean, that's, that's just a given. When we work on human remains, we have to respect that they were once people. Thanks for asking the question. Estelle, one from that. I, I assume you've seen Rob Bryden's interrogation of one of the casts from that recent film, A Trip to Italy, you know, where it was used for comic purposes. Do you have a personal feeling about that? Do you see a boundary there that's been overstepped? Um, I, I haven't seen the film. I, I know about it, but I haven't seen it, so it's a bit hard for me to comment. Um, of course, there are boundaries, and um, uh, you have to look at each case on its merits. So I, I haven't seen the film, so sadly I can't comment on it. Sorry. Good evening, thank you for the talk, it was very interesting. Uh, I may have um, misunderstood, but I was just wondering about the cars that didn't have bones in them. Mm -hmm. um, are they secondary cars, or did the bones go somewhere? Um, they're not secondary cars, because each of the cars, and this is nearly all the cars that we have from the latter part of the 19th and the very early 20th century, they have some bones in them and they're in the right anatomical position. So it looks like, and again, we don't have documentation about this, but it looks like a number of the bones were taken out before the casts were made and reinforcing rods were put in. So to do that, they had to open them. We don't have those little holes that I showed you at the beginning of my talk. Um, that is not what happened. They must have made quite large openings and then the casts were restored by restorers who, as I said before, were, were trained to restore sculptures. So they basically improved them and remade them so visually they look like complete individuals. But the casts are essentially original. Does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. um. Throughout the talk, you showed um, or displayed sort of evidence that the excavation and knowledge of the site was extensive and far-reaching in terms of macro history, even in the 18th century and stuff. And in terms of um, artifacts and bodies that may have been lost to um, royal families or private collections overseas, what kind of um, issues and barriers did you, as a team, and the excavation study that's taking place at Pompeii face in terms of getting um, contact with those uh, lost artefacts um, and in any cases making claims to them? Um, well, in terms of the costs, they're all still in Pompeii, so we didn't have to deal with that issue. Um, in Italy now, they have a, um, an, an Antiquities Act and they have a special branch of the military police that um, reclaim artefacts that have made their way out of the country, so they deal with those issues we didn't.
Hi, Sol. Um, I was just curious, when you were excavating, um, just following on from the ethics question before, which community groups and which stakeholders did you have to engage with while you were performing the excavation? Um, well, we didn't excavate. I've been working on material that's already been excavated. Um, interestingly, and it's a good question, um, the people who live there today would be seen as um, stakeholders. They don't have an issue with it. They just think I'm very strange. I lived in Pompeii for years, um, and everyone in Pompeii, because it's a small town, knew what I was doing. So um, for a, they, they didn't have an issue with me doing the work, but they did have an issue with me. So if, for example, um, I went to the cheese shop, it didn't matter how full it was, I was always there first, and everyone crossed themselves when I left. <laughs> has, it been, has it been possible to do any DNA testing on the bones to work out the ethnicity of uh, the population? Uh, excellent question. Um, you know, I showed you that picture with the intravenous infusion of the nanoparticles of consolidant into the casts. Um, before that was done, they did take some samples of um, teeth and bone for DNA analysis, which are, I believe, still in Florence being analysed. Getting readable sequences from ancient human bone isn't always that easy. Unfortunately, by, um, by infusing the casts with these nanoparticles of polymer plastic consolidants, um, they've also infused all the bones, so it's not going to be possible to take further samples. But um, so far, there have been samples taken, but we haven't really got any results yet. Hi, Esther. Yeah. Um, can you say something about what you've discovered um, from your uh, um, normal random distribution of uh, bones? Uh, yeah, the... Um, so what, it, what we appear to have is um, roughly equal numbers of males and females, slightly more males, in fact, in the sample. A good range of ages um, with um, not very much in the way of tiny infant bones, well, mostly because they don't survive well archaeologically and not in the storage conditions in which they were capped. Um, in terms of pathology, and I was limited to... Um, to disorders that I could identify from individual bones, not from the entire skeleton. Um, there seems to be no skewing towards pathology. So, for example, trauma, like healed fracture, we're looking at 0.6% of the sample. Um, in terms of um, population, uh, interestingly, it was a river port and everyone assumes it's a very mixed population, but uh, what we find suggests that it's not such a mixed population and certainly the work on the casts seems to be reinforcing this and we've only looked at a fraction of the casts so far. Oh. Um, good evening. With the discovery of the, the dog and the big cast, mm -hmm. has there been like any major differences between the behaviours like, that can be seen through like the skeletal um, information? that can show major differences in behaviours between from then and now? Um, I'm sorry, can you... I'm not sure what you're asking. Can you repeat the question? Oh, uh, sure. Um, with the 
um, with the information that, so you know how you, you guys found the dog in the pig cast? Are there any, is there any information that shows major differences or major similarities between then and now in terms of the animals? Uh, okay, I'm with you. Um, well, with the dog, we seem to have some problems because it's made up in a number of parts and clearly not at the same time. So it's a bit of a pastiche dog. It certainly doesn't look um, unlike modern dogs. The pig, interestingly enough, has lots of bones in it. You'll be happy to know it was cast in 1977. And um, it is um, thought to be an unimproved breed, which means that it's not a domesticated pig, but was probably being kept for you know, dinner in the future. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, not, not really any apparent differences. Certainly from skeletal remains, there are some dog skeletons. Interestingly, no cat skeletons have been found. Um, they do suggest, yeah, similar to modern dogs. Hi, Estelle. So you talked about people using bodies as props for storytelling. What do you think about Sarah Bicell's work? Um, Sarah Bicell... Um, suffers from the Edward Bulwer-Lytton effect. Um, but you have to look at her in her context. So for those of you who um, are not knowledgeable about the um, work that's been done at Herculaneum, in the in early 1980s, uh, they discovered a large number of um, skeletons on the ancient beachfront, which was discovered accidentally when they were digging a drainage ditch because um, the groundwater level is very high and keeping water out of Herculaneum is a problem. And uh, they brought uh, National Geographic-sponsored work at Herculaneum and they brought in their own physical anthropologist called Sarah Bysall. Now, she was put under a lot of pressure to produce results that would be attractive to readers of the National Geographic and for their documentaries. So she was more or less um, um, encouraged, I guess, to over-interpret her remains. So they're absolutely in line with what Mr Bulwer-Lytton did. You look at the individuals, you look at where they were found and what they were found with and you recreate lives, personalities and names that they never had. And in fact, um, she produced a children's book um, that has parallel characters with those from Mr Bulwer-Lytton's last days of Pompeii based on the victims from the Herculaneum beachfront. So, yeah, she's definitely in that tradition. Just based on the animal sort of thing, unless I'm mistaken, I'd heard that there were carcasses of donkeys found in the mills or babies. Mm -hmm. There were five um, mules or asses found uh, in the so-called house of the chase lovers. There was a yeah, there was a, bake, a bakery there, and it was assumed they were used for the mills, and they weren't able to escape. That's correct. I think it's probably, t time is up. Um, can we please thank um, Dr. Estelle Laser and her team for, um, and can I just say that, I mean, obviously there's a huge number of you here. There are also audiences watching remotely in both Victoria and other places in New South Wales. And, you know, you really delivered a, a tour de force tonight. It was absolutely fantastic. Good academic rigour, 
but also brought down, you know, at a level of good communication and really explaining everything very, very clearly indeed. And can I also just quickly say, just thank Meredith Hall and Sydney Ideas who put on wonderful, wonderful talks. So please have a look at the website to see what else is coming up. So thank you, everybody. Thank you.